If you have ever wandered the mossy, verdant trails of the Pacific Northwest temperate rainforests, you have probably encountered that ecological wonder known as the nurse log. A nurse log is a fallen tree that, as it nestles on the forest floor, its growth rings slowly decomposing into duff, provides a nurturing seedbed to young conifers as they grow up to take the fallen tree's place in the local ecosystem. Some of these trees are relatively young when they fall, decaying into the obscurity of the soil within a couple of decades. Some of them are awe-inspiring in scale, having lived five or 10 or 12 times the length of an average human lifespan, a log that left undisturbed could still be there in a few generations for your great-great-grandchildren to see. Either way, modest or gargantuan, the nurse log holds the young seedlings as they find their roots, hoisting them above the growth-inhibiting darkness of leaf litter and fern fronds on the forest floor, keeping them safe from the trammeling hoofbeats of passing ungulates. The body of the nurse log, long since inoculated with the fungal spores that symbiotically connect it to the wider forest ecosystem, passes these spores on to the young trees, strengthening their resistance to the various assaults of pathogens and pollutants, and linking them to the vast networks of mycelium that touch every organism in the forest. The nurse log decays, its body slowly, almost imperceptibly, becoming indistinguishable with the soil layer and all the trees that went before it. The young saplings grow into mature trees, reaching toward the circle of sunlight left behind when the nurse log first fell, their branches taking their place in the forest canopy. I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. And this is my tribute episode to my teacher, Dr. David Schnarch, who died suddenly just about two years ago on October 8th, 2020. And just a content note that this episode contains somewhat detailed references to sexuality, so you may want to save it for later if little ears are listening or you're in your cubicle without headphones. Anyone who knew Dave, even for a few moments, could see that he had an arresting presence. Tall and broad-shouldered, with high-contrast salt-and-pepper hair, strong features, and an electric gaze that, when focused on you, elicited the distinct and disarming feeling that he was looking into some dusty and hidden back corner of your soul. I first encountered this gaze staring up at me from the author's blurb on the back of his book, Passionate Marriage, as I stood in the relationships section of a local New Age bookstore. The air buzzed with the commingling scents of dozens of kinds of incense and perfumed candles. It was the early aughts. I was in my early 20s, married, gripped by the dizzying sense that there was something I didn't understand yet that I was supposed to be doing with my life, and increasingly walking around with the sinking feeling that, after a harrowing adolescence, marriage and adult life would not be the refuge I'd spent those long, lonely years persuading myself it would be as a reason to stay alive. Like any good American beset with the eldritch mixture of profound self-loathing and doggedly earnest belief in human potential, I turned to self-help. I don't remember what made me pull that particular book off the shelf or what made me then buy it, but I do remember Dave's face staring up at me from the back, imbued with the layered meaning of our later interactions in the way that often happens when we look back on events that we know now from hindsight would go on to change the course of our lives. 
but in the moment, it was only a picture of a therapist with piercing eyes. I brought the book up to the cashier. I paid and took it home, the pages still smelling of the incense and perfumed candles. I went on to read the book with a voraciousness that should have signaled to me that, and why, I would soon start down the path to becoming a therapist myself, but it didn't. Of that, for the time being, I remained blissfully unaware, and I didn't save my marriage. Fifteen years later, at the end of a 20-hour layover on a frigid late May morning in Iceland, I boarded the second leg of my flight from Portland, Oregon to Frankfurt, Germany. From there, I would take a train to the outskirts of an out-of-the-way Bavarian town, where Dave was holding a seminar on his most cutting-edge work, the interpersonal neurobiology of trauma, and specifically the use of written mental dialogues in trauma therapy treatment. As one might expect, a lot had happened in those intervening 15 years. I had emerged from the haze of my post-adolescent chrysalis and become something resembling a fully formed adult. Jobs passed, relationships passed, I got divorced, did my own multi-year stint in therapy, resigned myself to my fate and applied to a master's in counseling program, became a therapist, made my peace with the gravitational pull of this work on my life and from my lineage. In 2019, I was in a phase of trying to rapidly advance my clinical practice and going to a lot of trainings. I've always been feast or famine like that when it comes to learning, sitting down to a brimming smorgasbord of information, consuming it all, and then letting it quietly digest and assimilate for months or years before going back to the table for more. When I was casting about for trainings that year, I got the idea of looking Dave up online to see what he had been up to. I hadn't been following him much since beginning my therapy career. As much as I admired him, he was mostly a couples therapist, and I was, and am, mostly not. But whatever popped him into my head that day was kismet, because what I found in the somewhat dusty corners of his website was this roster of trainings he was offering on this approach he had created to treating trauma, my wheelhouse. I had only even been in the same room with him once before, when he had given a presentation and done a demo session of couples therapy in one of those shabbily ornate conference rooms in a hotel at the edge of the Columbia River in Portland while I was in my grad program. So it was a testament to my admiration for him that within a few days of finding out about this training series, I had checked my calendar, registered for the next training, and bought my tickets to Germany, all without first reading the book that was the prerequisite for the course. Instead, I read the book on the plane. I remember that specifically, reading the book on the plane, because that May of 2019, I had been trying to get pregnant for a year and a half, and I had just made the decision to abandon the mood-destabilizing, hormone-laden treadmill of any more fertility treatments. Those of you who have run that particular treadmill know how crazy it can make you, how wild with desperation and jealousy. So it was remarkable in that moment on the plane, waist deep in this book about interpersonal trauma and hovering over the liminal middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the dark, that I felt grateful. Grateful is what I remember feeling, looking over at my blurred reflection in the window, that I had not had a child first without reading this book. As someone who longed to break the cycle of trauma in my family lineages, 
and had already dug deep into the body of research on the transmission of intergenerational trauma, trying to find everything I could about how it happened so that I could not. This book was the missing puzzle piece. It was the missing puzzle piece to a lot of other things too, both clinical and personal. But that moment, the one where this book pierced through the electric storm of my longing for a child and made me feel grateful for whatever alignment of stars had not put one in front of me before I read it. That one stands out the most. It would be a mistake to try to capture the experience that I had in the training in Germany with Dave. Any attempt to describe it would be dull, though the experience itself was anything but. It will be enough to say that I have never once since wondered whether it was worth it. The 5,000 miles of travel, the money I spent on the trip, the many awkward encounters with German therapists who wondered why I had come all this way to do a training with an American therapist from Colorado. It will be enough to say that I came home and immediately signed up for the next training he was holding in Denver about six months later. In that intervening six months, while I attended Dave's webinars and read and reread his book, I started seeing a new client whose case turned out to be perhaps the most important so far of my career. Important because the stakes for this particular client were very, very high, and our work together helped her in a way that I believe very few other therapists could have. She was the first client who I did trauma work with using Dave's methodology and Man, if I had not been hooked already, I would have been then. So I packed my bags for the much shorter and more manageable journey to Denver. And while it would be a mistake to try and describe the training in Germany, it would be a mistake not to tell you about the training in Denver. It began on a chilly November morning, and I sat in a folding chair in another one of those hotel conference rooms with about 75 or so other therapists. We didn't know at the time how marvelously intimate even that physical proximity would soon seem. No one had heard of a novel coronavirus yet. I was more comfortable in Denver than I had been in Germany, not sticking out like a sore thumb and needing to explain the anomaly of my presence. And the American cohort felt more relaxed, more casual in that way American academic settings are in comparison to most of the rest of the world. Still, many of the people in the room had known each other for years, even decades, training together while I was making my circuitous way toward becoming a therapist in the first place. I felt I had something to prove. I was familiar with the terms of engagement from the last training I had attended. Therapists were expected to use our own personal material as we learned the methodology. This in itself wasn't unusual. Most professional trainings for therapists operate that way for reasons of expediency, to facilitate accurate empathy for the clients with whom we'd be using the method and for the bonus of our own personal growth. Dave was different, however, in his repeated and explicit insistence that therapists are just as crazy as their clients and that we needed to run ourselves through the gauntlet of this work in order to improve our own functioning if we wanted to have a shot at actually helping anyone in the transformative way that is every therapist's dream. He used the word functioning specifically, seemingly not to let anyone delude themselves about whether all their psyche needed was a little cosmetic work. How well can you really be doing if your functioning needs improving? Dave didn't pull any punches about the existence of bad therapists and bad therapy. 
as with the rest of his work, that struck a simultaneously disquieting and refreshingly honest note. Of course, the other difference between using our own material in this training versus many of the others we've all been to was that in this training, our own material was the contents of our masturbatory fantasies, written out in detail and present tense and then projected on the conference room wall for all to see. The Denver training was six and a half days long, and the masturbation day was the fifth day. We all knew it was coming as we slogged through the first four days of examining in microscopic detail the processes by which interpersonal trauma occurs. The act spared no one. Dave was scrupulous in his insistence that trauma not be looked at as a sporadic anomaly that occurs out there to someone else or by way of someone else. If there was blood on your hands, by God, he was going to make sure you knew it. And for all of us, and you too, if you had been there, there was, and we did. What does masturbation have to do with trauma? Well, to be honest, I've been putting off writing this part, both out of a fear that I'm not going to be able to do it justice and Dave and the rest of us will just come off sounding like crackpots, and out of a fear of getting really boring with theory. But at the risk of being boring, I will go a little bit into the theory. Dave's trauma work is based on the concept of mentalization, which he called mind mapping, and the idea that we internalize these mental constructs of significant people in our lives, that these constructs become wired in, in a sense, to the functioning of our brains. And the locus of interpersonal trauma exists most centrally in the pictures we internalize of the perpetrator's minds. He called this traumatic mind mapping. Dave's whole method is based on the process of identifying and renegotiating our relationships to these internalized constructs, and sometimes the actual people involved. Where the masturbation part comes in is that Dave posited that the most deeply embedded constructs we have of other people's minds, whether positive or negative, traumatic or not, will show up in our sexual imaginations. So working with somebody's sexual fantasy content in a very careful and responsible way can provide an opportunity for a more elaborate understanding of how their interpersonal trauma manifests in their internal worlds and provide an additional site of renegotiation. So the assignment given at the close of the fourth day was to go home and do it, you know, actually masturbate and write down your fantasy in present tense detail and send it to him in an attachment over email, where it would be anonymized before being read, compiled, and analyzed in front of the morning's training session. I could have chosen not to participate. There was no requirement to submit material for this kind of public analysis. But I was longing for some redemption from the shame. I was longing to prove something, this time to myself, about how courageous I could be, about being someone who could do the terrifying, right, hard thing. I wanted to feel something good about me, something truthful and good after all that reckoning. I also wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to get some free personal therapy from my idol, an opportunity I knew I might not, and in fact, would not get again. I set my mind to it and did it, you know, actually masturbated, tapped out my fantasy on my iPad keyboard, and sent it to Dave's email. 
The more technologically minded among you might note that there would have been an easier, more secure way to make sure the fantasies were anonymized, other than just trusting him not to look at them while he moved the attachments into a collective folder. There would have been, but we didn't need that. We trusted him that much. On the fifth day, I sat at my usual table and watched the screen as Dave deconstructed a selection of my colleague's masturbation fantasies. Some funny, some beautiful, some sad. Every time he clicked the button to change screens and move on to the next fantasy, a mix of terror, relief, and disappointment flooded my body as I saw it wasn't mine. Somehow I managed to pay attention and learn a few things, a testament to Dave's aptitude as a teacher. Then he clicked the button again, and the next fantasy was mine. This time my body registered only terror, which gave way to overpowering shame as everyone in the room quietly read what I had written. To read it again myself in that moment would have been intolerable, but I didn't want to give away the game to my colleagues by looking down. A pole with a large drooping American flag sat right next to the screen at the front of the room. So I fixed my eyes firmly on the flag, studying every dusty fold and crevice in excruciating detail. This next part felt kind of like consulting with a psychic, only one who reads the depths of your soul using your masturbation fantasy in a room full of your professional peers instead of consulting tea leaves or interpreting the colors of your aura. Freud would have been blown away. He spent a good 20 minutes dissecting my fantasy and engaging the other students in a lively discussion of its themes and implications while I did my level best to play it cool before clicking the button again and moving on to the next one. I sat there face neutral, filled with this unexpected relief that came from having been seen by him in a way that no other person, no other therapist had been able to see me and not the sexual fantasy. That's ultimately small potatoes. The internet's full of them. But what he saw of me in it. And there was exhilaration too, at my own courage for making it happen, for allowing myself, even anonymously, to be seen. This isn't the first piece I've tried to write about, Dave. In the fall of 2020, I lay in my bed with my sleeping one-week-old daughter on my chest idly scrolling my phone. Other than the light of my long-awaited newborn child, it was a dark time. We were five days away from Joe Biden defeating Donald Trump in his bid for re-election, but nobody knew that yet. The coronavirus vaccines were still wending their way through the uncertain timeline of clinical trials, and we were staring straight down the barrel of the looming pandemic winter. And then I got the buzz on my phone that signified the notification of the email from a colleague telling me Dave had died. Everyone who has lived long enough knows the scorpion sting of initial grief. Everyone knows that punch in the gut or wherever it hurts you the most. My mind swam trying to contain the loss of the thinker, of the teacher, of the man, of the ideas he would never go on to have, of the things his students would never again learn from him, of the longer and deeper relationship I hoped for that we would now never build. I had longed to be known by him, by someone who was so skilled in the granularity of knowing. 
by someone who could sit awash in the unfiltered intensity of the worst in someone and still see the best in them. By someone whose compassion manifested not in niceties, but as an unwavering investment in who someone had the potential to be. I wanted to be known by someone like that. For him to appraise the best in me as a person and as a therapist and call it good. Now I never would be because there was no one else like him. If I wanted it, I would have to do it for myself. The first piece I wrote about him wasn't any good, by the way. It seems to be a universal truth for writers that while simultaneously racked with inadequacy and grandiosity, we can't always tell when our writing is good, but we do get a particular queasy, unpleasant, sinking feeling when it's really bad. I tried to describe him to capture him, to articulate his genius, what he meant to me and so many people. And I knew even when writing it, I felt how it just didn't land. The best in me can acknowledge that I tried in those first few months of grief, amidst the tenderness and disintegration of new motherhood, the wet times of milk, blood, sweat, and tears, and failed. On day three of the training in Denver, in the middle of the trauma portion, everyone had started to look noticeably haggard. After having driven sobbing along I-25 to my ex-in-law's home where I was staying the night before, I slept hard through both my alarms and stumbled in 40 minutes late and groggy. So much for the something I had to prove. But one look around told me I was in good company. After all, we had just spent the past two days on an exquisitely detailed guided tour of the hells that other people create for each other, acutely aware that we were no exception. That kind of thing will wear on a person. You didn't have to be as eagle-eyed as Dave was to notice that everyone was frayed around the edges. And at one point, halfway through the morning, he casually said, at this point, some of you have realized some pretty unflattering things about yourselves. He paused letting us marinate in our self-loathing for a brief moment. Then, more forcefully, and those of you who haven't are really in trouble. Those of you who haven't are really in trouble. That's why the first piece I wrote about Dave wasn't any good. Not because I wasn't being honest about him, but because I wasn't being honest about myself. I was holding myself back, bargaining with myself that I could still have something worthwhile to say while keeping myself hidden. But good writing, like good therapy, requires not only self-revelation, but the willingness to contend with what we've revealed. Confronting an antagonist, as Dave would say, or confronting an audience, is really about confronting ourselves. In the weeks and months after Dave died, I could acutely feel the immediacy of the truth that we internalize our mental maps of significant others in our lives because my internalized mental map of him was active often. Sometimes in a session with the client, I would feel him tugging at me, hearing him telling me what and how I should be doing better. And then I would wrestle with it for a while, because the things that he would tell you to do better were never easy things. They were always scary, high-stakes, anxiety-confronting things. Then I did better and I got to have the experience of him feeling proud of me, something I only had the opportunity to get the smallest taste of in real life. I've noticed recently that I don't hear Dave anymore. 
I try to call on him sometimes to think, what would Dave say about this problem? And listen intently for an answer that doesn't come. In my woo-woo moments, I think maybe his spirit has moved on to more important things to do than whisper in the ear of his former student. Or maybe it's that as I've grown, I've begun to integrate him into myself, to integrate my understanding of who he was into who I am becoming. The way as a sapling grows skyward from the forest floor, over time, its branches reach closer to the light, further and further away from the log that nursed it. The questions that my knowing of him had answers for have all been answered. The rest are mine to contend with, as I am able. And there is a freedom and beauty in that. There's this idea that didn't originate with the author Stephen Jenkinson, but he is the source of my most recent encounter with it, that a good death is one that provides nourishment and sustenance for other beings. That not just the life lived, but the death itself should provide someone else with what they need to flourish. And in the two years since Dave has died, I have looked up from the forest floor to the massive patch of sunlight he left in the canopy and seen that even though it's not what he or we would have chosen, the space he left is part of the gift he gave me and the rest of his students, a place for us to grow upward and outward into the light. Dave, to say thank you will never be enough. Thank you for being here and listening to my tribute to my teacher, Dave Schnarch, here on A Therapist Can't Say That. Next episode, we will be returning to our regular programming with an interview on therapy and marketing with Rachel K. Albers. And it's not the same old shit you've heard about therapy and marketing over and over. There's some really fresh and interesting stuff in there. So come back next time to give that a listen. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to share the show with a therapist friend you know would appreciate what we are putting out there. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I always welcome your feedback and your thoughts about the subjects we are discussing on the show, so if you have something you'd like to share with me, please get in touch. You can send me an email or a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.